70% of the counties in the United States don't have a board-certified child psychiatrist. We clearly have to find ways, and, and telemental health and, and telehealth services are clearly a way of sort of expanding our range of services. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. As the end of the year approaches, many people are saying they're glad to see the end of 2020. Definitely a tumultuous year by any measure. In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence discusses the mental health impacts of the pandemic with Dr. Vic Schwartz, and here's best practices for getting through the holidays, traditionally a challenging time of year for many people struggling with mental health issues, in a year that has been hard on everyone. Let's listen in. Victor, it's great to catch up, and uh, I thought just as an introductory matter for our audience, uh, maybe you'll quickly summarize your uh, illustrious career and sort of what you're doing now, and we'll launch into some very important topics here. Right. Thanks, David, and it's a pleasure being here with you today. Uh, so I'm a psychiatrist, have been for the past 30 years involved in uh, focused on higher ed mental health and administration to a large degree, uh, focused on late teens and young adults. I've been a uh, counseling center director. I've been a dean of students. I've been a chief medical officer at a nonprofit called the Jed Foundation uh, that focuses on suicide prevention and mental health promotion in higher ed settings uh, with teens and young adults as well. And recently uh, set up my own consulting practice called Mind Strategies to continue doing that kind of work. I've had some really wonderful opportunities to, uh, you know, consult with groups like the NBA on their mental health efforts, like the U.S. Olympic Committee, uh, with a number of uh, films and and Broadway shows that have uh, focused on issues of mental health and suicide. Uh, And and I think there's a growing awareness of how important uh, and impactful that kind of work can be, both in terms of reducing stigma, but also the importance of uh, messaging safely around mental health and suicide is really, really important. So uh, I'm continuing to do consulting actually for the group that I I was with before, but I'm also doing uh, primarily this private work through my own consulting company now. And uh, Vic too modest. So I'll mention to the audience that Victor has truly been a uh, thought leader and a pioneer in destigmatizing the issues around mental health, uh, the outreach initiatives, uh, particularly to the most vulnerable populations, uh, often uh, younger people, and also um, focused heavily on the issues of substance dependency chemical abuse. Let me launch into uh, what brings us together today, which are the um, specific mental health challenges that have been posed by the enduring crisis around COVID-19. And I know you've uh, spoken about it. Dr. Michael Lesser, whom I know you know, who leads our medical and psychological network, uh, likes to refer to the pandemic as having at least two legs. Uh, There's the biological, but also the behavioral. Perhaps you could give an overview in terms of what you're seeing as the mental health implications of COVID-19 and how it impacts various groups. And then we'll get into a discussion about um, some pragmatic steps that people should be thinking about. 
Sure. Uh, you know, this is actually an extremely complicated question, and I think it's complicated because what we've seen uh, both on the health side and the mental health side is that uh, there are nearly two different pandemics. Uh, you know, sadly, uh, the pandemic has, I think, amplified and highlighted the uh, discrepancies in access to health care, uh, the discrepancies in, you know, underlying health, actually, both on the physical side and in some ways on the uh, ability to handle the stresses, the emotional stresses that have come from the pandemic. So what I mean is this, I mean, we've seen that uh, a large percentage of the population who've been most impacted by the health consequences of, of the epidemic are people who were not able to really uh, sequester and isolate in many cases, people with underlying health conditions, partly because they, they were uh, not necessarily able to get good enough health care leading into the pandemic. So, you know, decreased access to care uh, in many ways set people up to be more vulnerable to the consequences of the COVID pandemic. What we've seen, interestingly, on the mental health side appears not so dissimilar. So I think we see divergences. There are populations, obviously, where the illness has been more impactful, that people have lost numerous family members, uh, where people have lost jobs. These have often been in lower socioeconomic groups and minority groups who have been most impacted. While, you know, for those of us who are in the, you know, sort of middle, middle class and above, I think it was actually remarkable that many, many uh, activities, functions were able to shift to remote pretty effectively. And while there are industries, you know, the entertainment industry, the hospitality industry uh, that were impacted quite dramatically, uh, many, many people were able to uh, shift to homework. And, you know, while this has been absolutely a kind of an ongoing stress which has been confounded by you know without getting into the politics the uh, lack of credible consistent and coherent leadership which is I think essential during a crisis and and which has been uh, sort of absent in concerning ways many people have come through this really okay uh, and, you know, in the upper classes uh, socioeconomically, clearly, again, it's been a stress. I mean, I, I've uh, compared it to the stress of taking a long hike carrying packages. You know, it's going to cause your heart to beat faster and you are going to heat up and your arms might start to uh, ache but you're not necessarily getting sick from it. it. It might put you at greater risk for illness. And the same thing is true on the mental health side. This has been a lingering emotional stress. Uh, it's challenging. Obviously, the isolation has been a challenge. The, you know, it's remarkable this would have been uh, intensely worse did, if we hadn't had the all of the virtual platforms to compensate and shift all kinds of uh, business and, and financial activities and personal activities to, you know, to, to virtual platforms, which are not the same, but, you know, have turned out to be, I think, better than a lot of us expected. 
I'll just mention that uh, you know JAMA Pediatrics just published a uh, actually JAMA Psychiatry um, just published a really kind of stunning uh, set of data. The state of Maryland looked at suicides in the first couple of months of the pandemic. And there was a clear divergence between the black population where we saw the suicide rate increase and, uh, you know, whites actually had a decrease in suicide rate uh, during the first couple months of the pandemic. You know, and uh, again, I think to some extent that's been fed by the uh, divergent impact both economically and in terms of physical health on on families and on communities. Maybe go into a little bit of detail uh, about some of the, we'll call it related symptoms, which are not quite obvious. People have certainly been educated in terms of the symptoms, the physical symptoms of COVID-19, less less telling in terms of at least the popular discourse and, and some of, you know, the announcements that are put out for public consumption have been, you know, the significant psychological and mental health related issues that have been implicated, not simply by the disease itself, but by the ramifications of its disruption to people's lives. Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing are really the impacts of a kind of chronic stress. And, you know, where my metaphor breaks down of the carrying the heavy packages Uh, maybe on a hot day, is that part of the challenge here is that until the uh, advent of the vaccines, we didn't really have a sense of any kind of clear endpoint to this. So it's like you're carrying packages but don't know how far you need to go. So, you know, chronic stress is manifested by difficulties concentrating, feeling edgy and irritable, often difficulty sleeping, which uh, I think many, many people have have described over the last months. And that becomes exacerbated by also not getting as uh, as consistent exercise as many people have. Uh, I think we've heard a lot about increases in substance use and substance misuse. So if you, uh, you know, look on Twitter or just look where, you know, any of the social media platforms, the amount of joking about, you know, gaining weight, gaining 10 to 15 pounds because of anxious eating. And, you know, some people eat more when they're anxious. Some people uh, eat less. And stress and anxiety are very, very closely connected. So all of these kinds of physical uh, activities, ability to remember things, a lot of people, I think, again, this cascade, often the, the, the difficulty sleeping winds up having a series of impacts that can make people look like they're depressed or having an anxiety disorder when really they're they're simply stressed out and you know dealing with um, you know a legitimately stressful situation uh, you know obviously that compounded with all of the social turmoil which I think made many people feel sort of aimless uh, irritated frustrated discouraged um, and in some ways angry, uh, all of those things are things that can be happening in the face of chronic stress. 
thinking too about people who have had uh, you, you know housefuls of houses full of sometimes their kids having to work in situations where there might not be enough private space. Um, you know, all of those things clearly add to the burden of the stress, but shouldn't be confused with mental illness, right? Because I think people have enough to worry about without thinking that because they're having trouble sleeping or, uh, you know, having trouble with their appetite, that that implies necessarily that they're mentally ill. They might be, again, at higher risk, but it doesn't itself imply a mental illness. I think that very important point, and hopefully people uh, will feel relieved to hear that from you, uh, Vic. Uh, but just in terms of what they should be aware of, uh, not only with respect to their own moods and activities, but also of their loved ones, their, you know, sure, their sure. partners, their children. Everyone is bearing this a little bit differently. And... Um, so maybe you could go into some of the things that people should be looking for. Yeah, and, you know, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll beat my metaphor of the carrying the packages to a bloody pulp. You know, just because you're carrying these packages and you, you're not necessarily ill doesn't mean you wouldn't appreciate someone coming along and giving you a ride or helping you with the packages. So, you know, I think what your question implies is when should people be thinking about what they're experiencing as being a problem, and then part B to that is at what point should they think about maybe getting some kind of professional help. So like with a lot of these kinds of things, it's a matter of degree. It's uh, really a question of what this is the level of functional impairment and what's the level of the pain or distress that's associated with the stress that you're experiencing. So if you absolutely can't sleep uh, for a couple days or, you know, if your sleep is really so badly interrupted that you really can't concentrate, can't remember things, are having trouble speaking, um, are really having trouble getting the basics of your work done, if your distress is so painful that you can't distract yourself from it, you can't calm yourself down, using prudent steps that, you know, I'll talk about in, in just a moment. Uh, and, you know, certainly if there are concerns about dangerous increases in substance use uh, or changes in your feelings of self-harm, if they begin to emerge, and we certainly heard from a number of young people that there were increases in reports of thoughts around self-harm uh, during... Uh, this last couple of months. If those kinds of things are present, then that's a problem that needs to be addressed. The first kinds of steps, and, and let's put the, the thoughts of self-harm to the side uh, for a second, but for the other things, difficulty functioning, difficulty sleeping, difficulty concentrating, Taking a couple of prudent steps, trying to uh, get on a regular sleep schedule, you know, you can find on a bunch of websites uh, information about good sleep hygiene, trying to have a regular uh, sleep routine with going to bed, trying to get to bed at regular times, which, you know, again, strangely enough, with people working from home, sometimes is even more challenging trying to, you know, manage your nutrition properly, 
doing what you can to uh, get some exercise in ways that are safe, taking safe steps to connect with people in, in your universe who feel supportive, who you like to spend time with. If you can do it outside, that's great. If you can do it virtually, obviously the outside option is getting a little bit difficult for those of us in the, you know, in the, in the northern climes where it's getting a bit colder. Uh, and if there are thoughts of self-harm or really dangerous uh, substance use, and dangerous would be, again, to the point where it's really interfering it or escalating, uh, or if you're using substances that really are dangerous, any, you know, any non-prescribed uses of opioids, I think, should all of those things should really trigger a, an immediate uh, attempt to get some kind of professional support. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment, but I wanted to cut in here to talk with you about RAIN, the Risk Assistance Network and Exchange. Our mission is to help risk professionals better manage and avert risk. We help our clients stay informed with actionable information, critical analysis, and commentary from across the globe, enabling you to take a more proactive approach to emerging risks. Be better prepared with shared community insights, best practices from industry peers, and access to world-class expertise, including medical and infectious disease specialists from the RAIN network. Respond with confidence. RAIN is your trusted partner and single-source gateway to pre-screened risk experts and service providers who can help you take action. Find out more about how RAIN can help you at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. Let's get back to the podcast. You've outlined some of the issues that can come up as a result of isolation concerns about job security, sometimes resorting to alcohol or, you know, recreational substances. You know, generally, um, also, when people have lost loved ones or are concerned about loved ones who have fallen ill, this can implicate all sorts of additional stresses. And it's interesting, you you, you talk about um, people you know, carrying things and putting things down. The metaphor I was always comfortable with um, when I somebody finally unburdened themselves. I, the question I've asked is and with Michael is uh, how long have you been carrying that knapsack around? Mm. Mm-hmm. And and so very often people are aware that they're carrying burdens. Sometimes they're not. Can you perhaps talk about some of the ways in which people can begin to? relieve the stress on their own, but also the types of outreach efforts and outreach resources that are available. And obviously in the most extreme, I know um, you've been an advocate around um, the National Suicide Hotline and other types of resources. But maybe you could share with the audience um, some some of the practical advice and tips that people can begin to deploy on their own behalf. Sure. Uh, and, and, you know, it's funny because we even use that idiom of people having a lot of baggage that they're carrying. So, you know, I, I think it's it's is an image that is common. And, you know, the, the first thing I would consider is connecting with real people in your life, um, you know, and, and the challenges now are a little bit different because obviously we can't 
connect in the same way. It's interesting how much connection socially happens around uh, meal rituals and food rituals, uh, which are often actually associated with holidays and commemorating holidays, which I guess we'll, we'll get into as, as we move along. But uh, finding ways to connect with and spend time with people in, in your life who uh, feel nourishing to you, people who feel supportive, is an excellent, excellent step for, you know, for those who have those kinds of opportunities available. If not uh, connecting with groups, uh, you know, one of the things I've actually thought about in terms of uh, child development in the last um, 20, 25 years, uh, and I think this is true of adults too, is the extent to which kind of community centers, I mean, it used to happen largely for many people in the context of, uh, of religious communities, but not always. Uh, you know, there were clubs, there were all kinds of uh, ways that people associated uh, together. There were, you know, bowling leagues and things like that. Now, obviously, many, many of those things have been impacted. And a lot of those things have receded in any case over the last 20 or 30 years. And I, I think some of those things, again, not to get into any of the sort of religious principles, but just as opportunities for people to get together and, um, you know, find themselves in supportive communities. It's unfortunate that we've lost those. Some of those things, as you suggested, have shifted to, uh, for better or for worse, to online platforms. There are a bunch of groups that have put out uh, excellent information around managing the stresses of COVID, uh, the Mental Health Association, uh, for younger people, groups like the Jed Foundation and the Child Mind Institute have done uh, great stuff. So has the Clay Center at Harvard at Mass General Hospital. Uh, there's a group of, at Stanford also who put out some great resources for young people. So find reliable, you know, kind of serious resources, and, and there are a ton of them out there that give information about this. But, you know, if you break them down, many of them boil down to self-care, so the kinds of things I was talking about before, managing sleep, managing nutrition, uh, managing exercise, getting uh, opportunities to connect with other people. Many people find various mindfulness uh, activities helpful, meditating, uh, but it doesn't have to be that. Actually, some people with anxiety issues find meditating amplifies their anxiety. So find a an activity. It could be a hobby. It could be knitting. I, I've been seeing uh, articles about people taking up knitting because, you know, sort of repetitive activities that uh, are lead you to to some productivity uh, can be very very uh, sort of anxiety relieving. They can be relaxing to do those kinds of things. If you're into music or, you know, have other hobbies, uh, find time to do that. One of the challenges has been structuring your time, having some time for yourself, having time, you know, if you're with your family, having time with your family. Uh, try to create a bit of a structure and pattern to your day. And all of those things can be helpful. 
obviously in the face of a crisis, the National Suicide Lifeline is an important national resource. Lots of uh, younger kids uh, prefer crisis text line and have used that resource as well. Uh, and there are a number of uh, programs for people who might have specific needs, uh, like the Trevor Project for LGBTQ folks uh, who might want to uh, speak to somebody that's, they, they run a wonderful crisis line. So, uh, you know, poke around and find your resources. There are a lot of really, really excellent resources, but, you know, the buyer needs to beware. There are obviously things that are, uh, sort of less reliable out there. Try to find a nonprofit uh, or a, a hospital or academic-based uh, program to find information, and you know, make sure you do a little bit of looking to make sure it's a, a reliable source of information. All great advice. And uh, what we'll do as part of this podcast, Vic, uh, Dr. Lesser, Michael, will work with you, and we'll put some. Uh, trusted and credible sources and the links to those sources. want to get your, your views uh, because it's been said that as a result of COVID-19, trends that were likely inevitable have, uh, have been accelerated. And one thing we have seen, uh, and I'd like to get your views on this, uh, is a growing reliance, if not acceptance, on telemedicine. So maybe you could share uh, with the members of our audience, not just uh, the practice of telemedicine, you know, formally with doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, but even, you know, some of the group settings that you've alluded to, uh, mindfulness sessions, uh, things that might deal with cognitive behavioral therapy, even, you know, sort of group support meetings, etc. Yeah. Well, you're right that uh, I think some of these kinds of uh, approaches have been looked at. I remember a couple years ago hearing about a program actually in another country where uh, social workers were checking in on homebound elderly. They set them up on uh, uh, some kind of, uh, you know, video conferencing platform and checked in on them every couple of days. And it, they found profound uh, positive impact on their mood. Uh, just having that small amount of, of contact and someone checking in. There's, a, there's other kind of dramatic information out there. When uh, young people have been taken to an emergency room after a suicide attempt, Simply a postcard uh, reminding them about making follow-up appointments, even if they haven't made a follow-up appointment, actually lowers their risk of subsequent suicide over the next 30 to 60 days. So, uh, you know, I think what we're finding is that um, it, it doesn't take much to make an impact that these telehealth uh, opportunities for clinical services, while maybe not, you know, 100% as, uh, as effective, might be in the, you know, feel like they're in the range of 70, 80%. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously there are challenges. Not everybody has good access to, uh, you know, to Wi-Fi or, or service. Not everyone has a private place that they can do this. So there are 
privacy concerns, both from a legal and a, a practical perspective for doing this, but it, these things can be used, and, and you know, I think we have been forced to think about, and, and this is probably one uh, inadvertently good thing that's come out of this, uh, to, to use these kinds of platforms. I will say, too, that you know, we, we know very well there are large swaths of the country that simply don't have access to health care, and the problem is even worse around mental health care. So I think seventy uh, percent of the counties in the United States don't have a child, a board-certified child psychiatrist, practicing in those counties. I think those those counties reflect like twenty percent of the population. Uh, so we clearly have to find ways, and, and telemental health and, and telehealth services are clearly a way of sort of expanding our range of services. I, I think you know. I believe we need more sort of foundational uh, structural changes to our system to uh, incentivize people to work in places that might be otherwise underserved. Uh, but, but as you say, the capabilities of doing group meetings, uh, obviously some of the platforms are clunkier than others, but some work fine. Um, and other kinds of support activities absolutely are, are something that I think we've seen the value of. Again, one of the big structural problems has been a state licensure problem, which is to say that until COVID hit and there were a loosening of restrictions, you couldn't provide services in theory legally to someone who was in a different state unless the clinician was licensed both where they were sitting and where the patient was sitting, which, you know, again, was uh, unrealistic for, for many, many people. I think COVID, again, may push us to reconsider those limitations because thinking about college students, especially many went home, so they no longer had, in many cases, legal access to their student counseling services, but they might be in a place where they didn't have much access to community services, uh, and and this is certainly a, a challenge that we're going to have to fix. So my takeaway here, Vic, is that perfection uh, in this in this particular space is the enemy of the good, and absolutely, and people should be reaching out and certainly feel no stigma about reaching out to get support wherever they can. Sure, sure. Uh, let me just sort of pose a type of question that economists weigh when they talk about cost benefits of any solution. Uh, a lot has been made about, you know, the lockdown. And obviously some of that is to manage, you know, the capacities that hospitals have for treating patients. Some of it is to you know, keep the numbers low and, you know, prevent further spread while the nation and the world, quite frankly, await, you know, the rollout of the vaccine. But what I'm hearing from you and what we've heard from other leading mental health specialists is that there are a lot of costs here that have not been factored in to the fact that people who are social animals have not been able to congregate together can have a very, very profound impact, not just adults and, you know, young adults and 
senior citizens, but the youngest people. Do you think in, in, in the decisions we are now making about restrictions around travel and getting together that, that the mental health costs are being appropriately weighed? Well, so, so there are multiple facets to that question. And, uh, you know, it would have been wonderful uh, had somebody from the mental health world been included in um, President-elect Biden's COVID task force. Um, although I have to say that his uh, Surgeon General uh, nominee, uh, Vivek Murthy, has, has really written and, and thought about in very deep ways mental health and actually specifically the importance of connections and connectedness to the maintenance of health. You know, what I'll say about that is people are by and large, more psychologically resilient and adaptable than we give them credit for. And, uh, you know, again, short of having family members become ill and die or, you know, families be stressed with unemployment or homelessness, the lack of connections, and even for younger kids, um, the lack of connections, assuming they're not just completely left to their own devices, which you know, is, is likely not the case for most of them, um, are things that can be uh, recovered for. So I would say even from a mental health perspective, uh, we really need to practice physical safety first while being cognizant of the uh, emotional impact of um, of COVID on people, both adults and children. I, I will say that uh, almost turning the question over on its head, during August, the White House was pushing for school openings and making a case about uh, largely based on the psychological impact on kids and kids need to get back to school. And, uh, you know, at the time, I was really trying to get some of the uh, main professional organizations. I had a number of conversations with people at the American Psychiatric Association and the Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry not to allow mental health to be used as a hook to uh, justify something that might not have been physically safe. And, you know, my claim was, yes, it's definitely unhealthy emotionally to be isolated at home. It's also unhealthy to, uh, you know, ha have your teacher die of COVID and experience that and uh, or, you know, bring COVID home and have uh, grandma or grandpa die. So, uh, you know, these things are often sort of multifaceted, and uh, I really think this was a situation where we needed to be mindful of the mental health impact of the decisions, but the primary objective here was to get the, the physical piece of the pandemic under control as uh, nimbly and effectively as possible. Part of what made the uh, emotional impact of this so challenging was the you know, lack of clarity of information and lack of consistency of policies. You know, the mental health ramifications of how the pandemic unfolded were kind of unpredictable and, and would have been mitigated you know, had we gotten in better control sooner. What I will just tell you from within our network and from major employers and concerns 
about the mental health of their employees, their students, their colleagues, the people within their homes is now very profound. This has been going on, as you know, um, you know, we're well into the ninth month. And yes. There, there's exhaustion, there's fatigue, there's economic stress, there's familial and relationship stress. And there are difficult explanations that that are hard to articulate for children as well as older people. We know of a number of doctors who have been in the wards and the front lines, and I have family members who have been there. A great deal of stress has been imposed upon them Mm -hmm. day to day, including dealing with with the loss of patients. Yes. And the continued... uh, almost non-stop efforts to, to save lives. Let me uh, shift just in the last couple of minutes to the advice that you have been giving, not just uh, your network of patients and uh, the groups that you're advising, but even to your family members, uh, the various advised safety protocols. And yeah. how how do you basically advise people in order to maintain their balance, their perspective, their basic, you know, mental health? Yeah, well, you know, to go back to the original metaphor, uh, home, home is now in sight for, you know, for many of us. We might not exactly know how far up or down the line we are in terms of vaccination, but... You know, we know that it's coming around the bend in a reasonable amount of time. And, you know, as your question implies, on the one hand, uh, one would hope it would make it easier for people to maintain that discipline uh, and say, well, you know, we've done great and really been careful for this, you know, eight or nine months that that we have and uh, have really come through it hopefully mostly okay, uh, we shouldn't relax now because now we can really make it. I mean, we're really at the, you know, what hopefully will be the final lap. Hopefully there'll be no uh, surprises coming out of uh, the vaccination process, but it does look like it's been uh, really carefully looked at. The flip side is, though, uh, it's uh, possible people will feel like they can now kind of relax and become careless, uh, which, given the rates that we're seeing currently, uh, would obviously be both dangerous for themselves and and really problematic for the system. As you said, the, the medical system has been relentlessly stressed for the last eight or nine months, and, uh, you know, if whatever we could do at this point to uh, impose a sense of uh, of clarity and clear goals and clear approaches, I think would be extraordinarily helpful. I've actually been uh, distressed that the TV news has not actually shown more of the hospitals of what's going on as they did in the beginning. I think there was a little bit of fatigue and maybe a sense that it was making people more stressed out. But I think the lack of it being shown, the numbers are are just way too abstract for people to really appreciate. So between the, the sense the vaccine is there and 
you know, the, the fact that we're not really seeing the uh, ramifications, I, I think it's unfortunately potentially making people a little bit careless. But people need to keep things in perspective and keep the goal line in mind while doing what they can to support each other, uh, you know, and, and stay connected. I mean, this is there's never been a time where connections have been more crucial and more challenging but be creative. It doesn't have to be fancy to be impactful. Victor, thanks. Some media outlets have actually uh, been doing a very good job, and I absolutely agree with you. Statistics don't tell the story. There are just some incredible narratives of what people have experienced, both in terms of profound loss and and what it means to be on the front line. Yes. Uh, NPR, I'll just call them out as one of the sources but the times has also done a, a very good job and i'm reminded 9-11 which is it's a it's just a very different event but there was nothing more emotional than reading the obituaries the victims of 9-11 and particularly as it was you know summarized and put in front of people um, yes and you do re- realize the very profound nature of loss and what mm-hmm. it means. Yes. Um, and so let me just close, and I'll, if you don't mind, I'll paraphrase your work a little bit, which is that, you know, feelings of anxiety and depression and self-awareness about, you know, issues about suicide or potential resorting to alcohol or other forms of, you know, chemical, I'll call it chemical relief, uh, is not anything to be ashamed about. And it's certainly not nothing to be ashamed about uh, if during this period of time we've been, uh, I'll use the term, your term, carrying baggage for too long. And and it's now weighed too heavily on us to deal with by ourselves. And so removing the stigma, the shame of an outreach, removing the stigma and shame of looking for help and asking for help is probably one of the most important lessons to come out of this uh, pandemic. And Victor, thanks, because I know you've been a uh, both an advocate and a bit of an apostle. Thanks. This issue. Glad we could discuss this today. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. You can get critical information on the COVID-19 vaccine direct to your inbox, Track key virus developments with news analysis and commentary to help you formulate your own policies, procedures, and plans. Sign up at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.